Okay, so in addition, right? It doesn't make sense to add until we already know what came before. So the point of this class, we're going to go over how many chapters of Tanya? Two words. How many chapters? Well, we did two words. Two words is in addition. So to understand what we're adding, we need to know first where we're coming from. Three plus. Oh, because there's the pre, pre... There's the title page, yeah. Right. Okay, so... Every single book, assuming it was written by somebody who was halfway competent, um, had an intended audience and an intended point. Which means that if you are not the intended audience, um, you're going to have a hard time understanding it. And if you don't know what the intended point is, you're likely to misread it. That makes sense? Okay, so the question is, what is the, who is the intended audience of the Tanya, and what is the point of the Tanya? Because that's what we need to know first, then we're going to summarize through chapters, and then we'll know what we're adding in chapter four, which is going to take us how long to get through chapter four? Get through it? Five months. Months. Nobody knows, that's right. Okay. Wow. Nobody knows, but it will take us longer than two weeks. Okay, so what is the, who is the Tanya's intended audience? Does anyone know? Is the Bainini? Everyone. No. Everyone. So there's two answers to this question. One answer is everyone, but that has like a lot of fine print to it. And the other answer is to a very specific kind of person. This is a person who is religious, God-fearing, devout, mature, sincere, and doesn't know how to make their observance of Judaism something that really touches their heart? How do they connect to Hashem, not just in their um, observance of the law, but also in their heart, in their spirit? Right? People would travel to the Alter Rebbe not because they um, d weren't motivated to keep Shabbos, but because Shabbos was dry, because prayer was dry, because tefillin was dry, because learning Gemara was dry. And the question is, aren't we supposed to connect to Hashem with our hearts? And so Alter wrote a book explaining that, in fact, we are. And not only are we supposed to, it's actually very karib. It's very accessible to everybody. Everybody has the ability to connect to Hashem within the context of Judaism in an emotionally engaging way. And that's why he wrote the book. Okay. Now, which means... If that's not what I'm interested in, the book is probably not going to directly address me, right? Also, if I'm not that religious or not that scholar, the book is probably not going to be written in a style that I directly relate to. So, then how can we say the first answer of the book is written for everybody? Because the basic idea of Hasidus is that deep down every Jew really wants to connect to Hashem and every Jew really wants to be Jewish. And every Jew really wants to keep Torah mitzvahs. So on some level, whether we're conscious of it or not, we are the person the Alter is writing the Tanya to. Some of us are more conscious of it. We have an easier time digesting what he says, and some of us less so, and it affects us more subliminally. Um, I'm going to teach the class assuming that we are consciously um, interested in what the Alter has to offer. Right? So my, the goal here is not to convince people that what the Alter says is true, but to take what the Alter says rather tersely and cryptically and make it understandable. Okay? All right. Um, when we don't get sidetracked. Okay, now, that's the, now, a basic idea, and we need to know going forward, is that 
Hasidus as a approach to Judaism is radically different than not Hasidus. Um, there are people that like to play it down and say it's like, oh, you know, it's all the same. It's not all the same. Hasidus is radically different. Okay? Um, what makes Hasidus radically different? The traditional view of Judaism is as follows. There is God. There are Jews. What do God and Jews have in common? What connects them? What binds them? What attaches them? And the answer to that would be? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because God is God and the Jews are people. God and people are very different. Okay? But then there is this thing, this bridge, that serves as a way to connect the Jews to God and God to the Jews, and we call that the Torah, or Torah mitzvahs. Okay? Now, in the traditional view, the Torah is therefore a third entity. So imagine you have a translator. You don't speak Chinese. They don't speak English. So you use a translator to communicate. Are you really directly communicating with each other? Yeah. No. Right? So even having that third party, which, quote, brings you together, is really just emphasizing how disparate you are. So the traditional view is that with the Torah, you have a connection. But it's not really a connection because the Torah, as much as it brings you together, serves as a barrier. Right? Like if you physically have glue, as much as the glue holds the two pieces of paper together, the glue is actually at a spot where the two pieces of paper don't touch. And if the two pieces themselves actually touch, they won't stick together. And so the traditional view would be, if you are not very involved in Torah mitzvahs, you don't have any connection with God, and God has no connection with you. That's the basic idea. And what does Hasidus change? That because we have a godly soul, we have an intrinsic connection to Hashem, therefore, um, it's not that Judaism is a bridge between us and Hashem, but rather Judaism reveals the intrinsic bond that we already have. Okay? Which means if a Jew does no Torah mitzvahs, they're still connected to Hashem. And the Torah mitzvahs are not a third party, rather they're manifesting something that's already there. Um, the analogy for this idea, imagine you have a Sefer Torah. Have you seen a Sefer Torah before? Okay. Yeah. So you take, a, you take dead animal skin, Right. You don't do it on a live animal, or right? you kill the animal first, then you take their skin. Um, and then on the skin, you make special shapes of ink. Right. People generally don't describe Torahs like this, right? right? Why am I describing it this way? Because that's really what's happening, right? You're taking two things, right? The animal skin, in any other context, we'd just say, that's animal skin, right? And ink, in any other context, we'd say, it's ink. It's just when you put them together, say, oh, now it's a safer Torah, now it's something special, right? So you've created something new by bringing two disparate things together. Okay. In contrast, the luchos, the tablets, what were they made of? Anyone know what they were made of? Sapphire. Okay. And what, did, what was added to the sapphire in order to make it into the holy tablets? I don't know. What? Hashemness. I like that word. I don't know what it means, but it's a good word. No, nothing was added, right? It was just stone tablets. It was just a piece of stone, a piece of sapphire. The words weren't, the words weren't added. What is engraving? What is engraving? Removing something. Removing something. Okay. And the original tablets weren't weren't even engraved. They were just created that way, right? It's you know, you know. Um, so the tablets are not taking two things and bringing them together. No, it's just, that's what it is. There's a piece of sapphire and this is what it looks like. This is its shape, right? So there's this entity called God slash Jewish person. 
And when it's manifest, when it's revealed, it looks like an observant Jew doing Torah mitzvahs with devotion and with faith and with a sense of trust in God, etc., etc., etc. But that's just manifesting one underlying thing, which is the unity of Hashem and the Jew. And if it's not manifest, it's still there, right? If you take the tablets and you cover them with dirt, right? It's still there, right? Um, it's not forming something new. It's, it's just bringing out what's already there. And so the, the main idea of the Baal Shem Tov is that instead of thinking of Judaism as something that um, a Jew needs to acquire in order to be found to be more righteous, and therefore you can take satisfaction if you're higher up on, the, on that ladder, and you thank God that you're not counted amongst the sinful people. Rather, we have to realize that we all are intrinsically one with Hashem. He is one with us, and that is manifest through Judaism. Um, which, by the way, means that we're also un intrinsically united with each other. Because right? if I'm united with Hashem and you're united with Hashem, then we're united with each other. Which means if we don't like each other, what does that mean? Beyond that. And be that's true. And what, who else don't we like? Ourselves. Ourselves. Right? So it's either we're getting along with everyone, every Jew, and Hashem, and ourselves, or we're not getting along with anyone. Rather, including, ourselves. including ourselves. And Hashem. And Hashem, right. And that fully happens when we're doing Torah mitzvahs as it ought to be. So instead of the Torah mitzvahs being something that we're supposed to climb up, um, it's something that we're supposed to reveal within ourselves. And that really changes a lot of things. Okay? One thing that it changes is that the strength for our Judaism comes from in this place that most of us are unfamiliar with called our soul. So now the question is, how do we get in touch with our soul? How do we access our soul? How do we access um, what's called the neshama or the nefesh elkis, the godly soul? How do we get in touch with that? And there are two ways. Okay. One way is the easy way, but less effective. It's called the short but long way. It's short because you get there very quickly, but it's long because you didn't really get where you want to go. And then there's the long way, which is short, which makes it hard, difficult, but you eventually get there. Now, in other words, one way is a long process, and the other way is quick fix. How long is the process, by the way? Anyone know how long? People say that, but I don't think that's true. Longer than you'd like. I'll tell you the difference. Okay? If you say that it's your whole life, then you're saying that as long as a person's alive, they still need to engage in this process, which we learn later in time. That's not true. Some people actually finish the process. Some people get there. And they're connected to yeah. the next Yeah, they're connected to the soul and they have to go. Like, it happens. It could happen. Like, it could happen by the age of, I don't know, four, three, 25, 85, right? It depends on the person. It could happen. For most people, their whole life, they're engaged in the process. But that's not intrinsically necessary. It doesn't have to be that way. And the other thing is that some people are like, oh, it's like a whole lifetime process, and it's like, it's okay, which is like, rather than, you know, like, it's, 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 a, it's something that's actually demanding, and it's more demanding than you're going to be comfortable with. And that's actually, I think, the more important lesson, is that some things are just more demanding than you're going to be comfortable with, and so that's going to be an ongoing challenge. As long as you're involved in the process, it's always going to demand more than whatever you... When you finally come to terms with what the process is, you'll discover it's more demanding than that. Are examples of things like that in life? As much as you discover, as much as you accept how difficult it is and how long the process is and how hard it's going to be, it's never that easy. It's always going to be more than that. I don't have any examples other than finding your soul. A parent. Being a parent is like that. Being married is like that. Yeah. 
Any other examples? Those are the two I was thinking of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. In other words, it's not that hey, the process you could never get to the end. It's theoretically possible to get to the end. The real problem is, is that the process is always more demanding in reality than your projection of it looking forward. And that means it really does take a serious amount of maturity. Because if you like sign up for this much, you're always going to be disappointed. There's always going to be more than that much. And same thing with being mature, being married, having kids. Okay. All right. So. The altar, but which way, which which path do you think he's going to take in the Tanya? The long way or the short way? The long way that eventually gets you there, but it's a difficult, long process, or the short way? The long way. Okay. Now, what makes the long way long, and what makes the shorter way short? Looking at your notes. Sure. They're there for a reason. So, basically. One possibility is that somebody whose godly soul is already vibrantly manifest can awaken your soul in a way that it's inescapable and unavoidable. Sorry, what was being interesting? That you could have someone whose godly soul is already manifest in a very vibrant way, and they can awaken your soul in a way that it's inescapable. Like you can't avoid discovering you have a soul because they've drawn it out of you in such an intense way. That's the short way. That's the short way. You need another person. Yeah, you can call that other person a tzaddik. You can call him a rebbe. You can call him Bob. I don't care what you call him, but you need this other person, and then they, um, like a syringe, they just draw it out of you. Okay. Why is this not so effective? So that's sometimes given as the reason, but that's actually not the reason I want to focus on. Because okay, so that's like a technical. We have them around, and and you know. Many things in life have technical dependencies. The real problem is, is because the way they do that is by getting you to transcend and ignore your human nature. In other words, that this process, this discovery, this experience of yourself, it um, desensitizes you and removes you from the regular human psychology that we all deal with. And so what ends up happening is you've discovered your soul at the expense of your humanity. So what happens when you try to go back to being a person, living a human life, having a job, having kids, right? It doesn't work. So, they, so what ends up happening is you keep flickering back and forth between being this transcendent, otherworldly consciousness and awareness of yourself and God, and then being slammed back into the mundane, the practical. Yeah? I just don't really understand what you're saying. I will give you an example. Have you ever been to a Fabrengen? Yes. Okay. Have you ever been to a good Fabrengen? I think so. Okay. To find good. I enjoyed it. I learned. Where you felt at peace with your connection with Torah and mitzvahs and God. And, and like, this is real and this is good and this is true. Yeah. Okay. Now. That, if you could like freeze that moment in time, okay? 
Does that state of mind just stay with you constantly after you discovered that in Fabrengen? Like you, you always feel that way? No. Or the next morning you don't feel that way anymore? Maybe or the next two days? Yeah, like not forever, maybe no. the next morning for a little. Okay, okay. Now, if you're gonna use that experience as your driving force, as your motivation to be really enthusiastic involved in Judaism, then it's not just that you need Fabrengans on a regular basis, but it's that you have to do something that actually is removing you from the regular everyday of life. Fabrengan is not, it's not just that it occurs occasionally, it's also not a normal thing, right? You can't, and so what ends up happening is you create the split, where like when I'm really out, when I'm really engaged and enthusiastic and, and at peace and with my Judaism is in, a, is in a situation or is in a state of mind where I'm detached from all of the things that go on in my actual life. Okay? Now, that's in a small sense, right? Now, if a person discovers their soul in a more, in a more intense way, right, it's really drawn out of them in a very inescapable way, right, then that dichotomy, that tension is made even greater. Right? Um, and so then if a person wants to really embrace that, they have to create a lifestyle where they're kind of um, ignoring or disassociating from a lot of human modes of being because it comes at the expense of this sense of their soul and they want to preserve that. Okay. And there is a path of that in Chassidus, but that's not the path the Alter Rebbe takes. The path the Alter Rebbe takes is finding a way to integrate the sense of the soul with the sense, with the, with the regular human psyche. In other words, just let me finish what I'm saying. That a person is able to retain being a human being who has a job, who has a family and all these things, and be engaged in those things, and have that permeated with a sense of their soul. And that is very difficult because you're trying to bring two things that are very opposite into harmony with each other. That's why it's such a difficult process. Yes? Can part of the short way help you in the long way? Like, can you have a little bit of heartbreaking inspiration and a little bit of other classic or other topics, like, on you to help you go through your long way? So, the, the answer to that question is that we have to differentiate between whether we're, so we're talking about a particular thing or a way of life. Okay? I'm going to give you an example. If my way of dealing with problems is drinking, it's not, but let's say it was, just for argument's sake, right? Is it okay for me to have a drink? I think most of us would say that's probably not such a good idea, right? Okay. Now, if my way of dealing with problems is not drinking, like that's just not a way, of, that's not how I deal with my problems in life, right? So is it a problem for me to have a drink? And maybe in certain situations, let's say, I don't know, if it's really the appropriate thing, let's say Purim, maybe even to have a lot of to drink? Okay, fine, right? So the drinking is not the issue. It's how does it feature in the, in the whole way of a person's life, okay? So, like, Fabrengan's not an issue, but... So, so it's, so, right, so it's not like the Fabrengan, is it a good or thing or a bad thing? The question is, are you, is, if a person is saying, well, I need Fabrengans, I need this, whatever, whatever it is, is a way to connect to my soul and to be in touch with my connection with Hashem, and the way that features in my life, the way I approach that is, that comes through disassociation, through ignoring, through denying the human side of me, well then, well then that's bad from the Ralph perspective. I mean, there's another viewpoint, and it's not my job to explain that other viewpoint. 
But if in the larger context of trying to integrate, there's some times where you want to focus more on one thing and sometimes you need to focus on thing and to bring them together, that's different. So it's much more about the overall perspective. What am I trying to achieve rather than saying, is this particular practice a good or bad practice? So if what I'm trying to achieve is ultimately is that I can be a human being suffused with a sense of my soul, so then whatever features into that, Dr. Abbasid will say, okay, there's a place for that. But if that's not what I'm trying to achieve, then the very same activity could be counterproductive. Right? A lot depends on why we do things, not just what we're doing. Why we do something affects how it affects, how it affects us, basically. Okay. So the goal of the whole book, then, is not just to help a person get in touch with their soul, but get in touch with their soul in such a way that they have a handle on it. They can. They have it integrated. It 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 it, it merges with um, being a, a a human being and having human issues and having human problems, rather than transcending and detaching yourself from those things. Okay. Um, now, is that kind of stable state achievable? It's achievable, but I think we all appreciate that that's that's a pretty lofty goal to work towards, right? To be a regular human being integrated in human concerns, while at the same time being driven by a sense of my intrinsic connection to God. Okay, but that's basically what the altar wants us to know. Okay, so that was the title page. Now chapter one. Okay, and I'm just going to focus on some key points needed to understand chapter four, not going to go through every single thing in chapter one or two or three. In chapter one, the Altar introduces us to what is by far probably the most radical idea in all of Tanya. Yeah. Okay. Which is that you have two souls. Okay. You've heard this, Edwards, heard this idea you have two souls? Mm -hmm. When you heard it, did you think it was a radical idea? Did you think it was controversial? No. Did your mind recoil at it? So probably you didn't understand it then. No, I... What? When I heard two souls, I was like, no, I don't. I okay. No idea what that means. So you're, you don't have no idea what it means, or you understood what it means, you said that can't be true? What? I was like, what does that mean? I thought, like, I have one head. Okay, well, so you're on to something. Yeah, I have one head, and I should have one soul. It seems to be pretty logical. I don't think many people here you have two souls and think, like, yeah, I do. How can you have two souls? Well, I don't know. I asked him. It seems to be like, I don't know. What? You never heard you have two souls? Okay, well, now you're telling you have two souls. Okay. What's a soul? Yeah. What? Okay. A soul is what makes you who you are. So what does that mean to have two souls? There's two of you. No, not you have two parts. There's two of you. Right? Like a marriage. In a marriage, there are two souls, right? There's the husband's soul and the wife's soul, right? In a friendship, there's two souls, right? Unless they're Jews, in which case we just double the amount of souls, right? So how many of you are there? No, there's two of you. There's two souls one. One body. Okay, so so what we have to do is you have to know. What? No, because you're with your wife, then it comes through theory because you're not sure, but it's not true because you're not aware of it. I heard I heard like three sentences crammed into one. I, you can you can say it again. I just didn't hear you. If you're not aware of it, then it's not true. 
you're two souls and then you're made of two souls and then you're four souls, but then she's saying there's a yam that says that when two people are together you become three souls. Because then you're saying that you're not allowed to become one after this. So so does that mean that <laughs> that's not true because you don't learn tarot all day with your husband with your uh, <laughs> Basically you have four souls when you're married. Yes. <laughs> until you have children. Until you have children. Yeah, but let's just focus on, on uh, you, you know, the, but <laughs> even you yourself, there's actually two of you. So before you get married, it's like you're already married. Oh, uh, that's, what you have that's basically what it is, is that but you have two souls. Merge. What? <laughs> okay. We're going to see, see what I mean about getting married. Let's have a short, short thing about marriage and souls, okay? Very short. Okay. When you get married, your souls do not merge. What? Yeah, I know. I know. What? They don't. Reunite. Maybe. Rarely. Usually not. Why? Why? That's the whole thing I thought. That like your souls. Okay. Fine. Yes. God has decreed that every single person has a, a soulmate and their soul and their the two halves of the same soul, right? You've heard this before? Yes. Okay. So first off, it's not so simple that that actually is true, but even according to opinions that it's true, um, rarely do you actually marry your soulmate. Oh, oh. Uh, yes. So Michelle, can we all be married? We talked about this. Yes. I, I gave a cold class on this last year. Yeah, we yes. talked about this. I'm sorry. I'm like, not in my head. Okay. Yeah, it didn't make sense. Right. Well, because just basically, here's the thing. You, you, will, you will make your life and the life of your husband much better if when you get married, you'd worry less about whether your souls are compatible and you worry more if you treat each other like a mensch and try to get along and respect each other and actually work through real life problems because your souls might not have anything to do with each other and that's fine. That's really? And it's like Hashem brings you together. It's like Hashem's like, like you know, give you a big hug and says, like, here, have a family so together. Is, so what's the definition of your soulmate? Meaning, I'm saying, you said, no, no, Sammy. No, I don't mean that. I mean, like, you're saying that... There are seven definitions of soulmates. I'm saying, you said that you marry someone that's not necessarily your soul. So what does that mean? Practically? It means Nothing? that... It means that Hashem thought it would be a good idea for you to marry that person. And does that make any difference in any way, shape, or form? I mean, why should thought a good idea to get married? I don't know. Like, maybe he thought you'd get along. Maybe he thought you'd bring your children to the world. Maybe he's trying to punish you. I don't know why he decided so we couldn't get married. That person. So it doesn't make a difference. If, if you married the person, God apparently wanted you to marry the person. Okay. Now the question is, try to marry, make the marriage work. Like, okay. focus less on on whether your souls are like I don't know. It's, it's true though. Like, ugh, if you're like not happy, you're like, but I thought our souls are and I thought we were compatible. What's the difference? <laughs> because you can work on being compatible. You can't really change your soul. It's like, like, who can you like replace soul? Okay. That's why that's how you explain divorce. What? That's how you explain divorce. What? They might not have been your full name. No, actually not true. In fact, according to this, one of the standard views, almost all divorces were soulmates because the first marriage that the man marries is always a soulmate by definition. But you just said no. No, I said there's different opinions. Oh, and there's seven definitions. And there's seven definitions of this. And in the most standard definition, the first marriage that a man marries is his soulmate. And since all divorces had to first start with a marriage, that means all the divorces were from the soulmates. So there you go. Or at least the first divorce. Some people get divorced more than once. Anyway, don't worry about souls. I mean, 
Nothing. So let's go back to there's just you. There's two of you. Forget your husband. <laughs> it's complicated enough just with you. There's two of you. Okay. 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 Now, the problem is that there's two of you, but there's only one body. Okay? So you can't live two different lives, which means you're both of you are going to live the same life. Right? So let's imagine um, you have two people. One person loves cold, rainy days, right? Sitting by the fireplace drinking hot cocoa. And the other person can't stand that and loves living by the beach where it's sunny in their palm trees, yeah? Yeah. Okay. But now let's imagine that these two people are physically joined. So they, they have to be at the same place and do the same thing. So whoever is more dominant is going to just decide how they live their life and the other one is just going to suffer along. That make sense? Yeah. Okay. So there's two people inside, and each person wants to live the life that's true to who they are, and the other one has kind of getting dragged along, okay? So it's not, and this is different than just feeling conflicted, because many times I feel conflicted, but it's not because I'm two people. Like when I'm sitting on the couch, I have the eternal dilemma that all men face, which is I'm too hungry to go to sleep, but I'm also too tired to go eat. And so what do I do? I sit nothing on the couch. I sit on the couch, waiting for this problem to magically resolve itself, which it never seems to do. Okay, but that's not because I'm two people. That's just because I want two different things, and like I, you know, but like it boils down to the same thing. Like I just, you know, I want to indulge my basic animalistic desires. It's not like a different. It's not a different person. There are two souls. One, and, and the basic thing that we need to know is that one soul is what makes us a person. And what does a person want more than anything else? No, people are willing to die. What does a person want more than anything else? To connect to things? To feel pleasure? Um, so I'm always hesitant with pleasure because like, there's definitely situations where people like, reject pleasure. Right? Um, I like this word because I think it captures it, but you can debate me if you want. I think the word is thrive. Okay. And I'll explain to you what, what, what? I love this word thrive. And it's a shame it doesn't exist in Hebrew. Okay. Because thriving means that there's this sense of your life just expanding. And so when that's happening, people are great. And when that's not happening, people are miserable, right? So what happens if a person's alive but they're not thriving and that goes on for long enough period of time? People stop wanting, right? wanting to continue living, right? Okay. So, right now, the question is, what makes me feel like I'm thriving? But I want to thrive, right? Okay. And, and this is very important. From the perspective of a human being, do you really care what makes you thrive? No. Like, it's just a given. Like, if it happens to be that eating lots of chocolate makes me feel like I'm thriving, then chocolate is good. And if it turns out that, like, conquering the entire world and becoming emperor of the ancient, you know, civilizations makes me feel like I'm thriving, then that becomes a good. In other words, on the human level, if we're going to be really honest, we define what's good and what's bad based on what makes us feel like we're thriving. And it's really just a toss-up what it is that'll make us feel like we're thriving at any particular point in our lives. That make sense? Yeah. Okay. I feel like some ways. Okay. So, um, which is one of the reasons why we call um, this soul the animal soul. Because what does the animal want? To thrive. Now, 
it's true that people thrive with, under different circumstances than animals, right? If you take a person and you give them water and hay and put them in a barn and let them wander around the field in the sunlight every day, they don't feel like they're thriving, right? But a cow? Right, okay, right. People, they generally need things like some, add a little purpose, challenge but success, surprise but stability, connection but autonomy, right? People are calm. Getting, getting the right mix to make a person feel like they're thriving is quite difficult, right? But, so we're more complex in what makes us feel like we're thriving, but basically we're driven by the same thing. We want to thrive. Okay. That's one person. So one person is, there's someone inside who just wants to thrive. The other person is called the godly soul. And what does the godly soul want? Connect to Hashem. Why? Because the godly soul is a piece of Hashem. What does that mean? The godly soul is a piece of Hashem? Hashem is like pizza. And then every Jew gets a little slice. No. What it means is that the godly soul is basically a miniature copy of God. Like a child is a copy of the parents. So we say there's a little piece of the parents in the child. So the godly soul is like a little copy of God. Okay, so being godly and connected to God is what is what the godly soul is driven by. This is a really weird question, but if we're, if there's a little bit of Hashem inside of us, then why are we trying to connect to Hashem? Why don't we try to connect to us? Didn't didn't I start the class by saying that this is all about the intrinsic connection between Hashem and the Jewish people, and that if you're connected, yeah, but we're not we're not connected. Um, what's that well? What's so the, that means what, that if I connect to Hashem, I'm connecting to myself. And if you truly connect to yourself? There you go. But isn't that so selfish? I mean, connecting to the body. And what's so bad about being selfish? It's so the opposite of connecting to Hashem. Why? I thought, wait, Why? doesn't it mean... Well, no, 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 no. You just throw out a pejorative that's selfish. Like, well, <laughs> who cares? So it's selfish, right? That's like saying, your hat's black. Okay, fine, it's black. I mean, no, fine. No, it's egotistic. And what's wrong with that? That's not letting a show in your life. Yeah, but you're just you're just making declarative statements. That's bad. You're not letting me like, why? What's he, what's isn't it? I'm asking you. What? <laughs> what's so bad about being egotistical? I think it's a little bit against Hashem. Why? Because you're showing that you're more important. Than what? Hashem. But if you and Hashem are intrinsically one, then being in touch with yourself is about so showing. You're basically saying I'm being egotistical and I'm so connected that I'm being egotistical about Hashem. No, what I'm saying is that maybe we want to be more precise about words like egotistical and selfish. Doesn't it also mean being connected to yourself? I mean, which self? We're not talking about an animal soul or whatever. Okay, so, so whatever, that, that's also true. Let, let's let's first take the word selfish, okay? If I sit down on the bus, am I being selfish? After all, if I sit down, someone else can't sit there. Well, someone else can't sit there, but the bus, there's enough seats for fine. Okay, right. So, that, I would say that most of us would say that that's probably, yeah, we, we would say that if you're sitting down on a bus and there's enough seats for everybody, nobody would think that's selfish, right? Right, right. We only even start considering whether it's selfish when there's more people than seats. And then we can debate. Like, even then, we're not sure if you're sitting down, right? Like, if you're like the old person on the bus and you're sitting down yeah. and like some, you know, you know, 20-year-old bodybuilders standing, like most people would say that's being selfish. I mean, it's like, you know, maybe some people would, right? So, um, 
What exactly is selfishness and why do I see it as a negative thing then? It's not, me being in, about me is not what we mean by selfish. Because if I'm sitting on the bus, I, you know, what's the problem? It's me being about me at the expense of someone else. And where's the, right? That's the selfish part. If I'm sitting in the seat and there's no one else can sit there and there's not enough seats for everyone to sit and my sitting is less necessary than their sitting. That's selfish. That's selfish. So where is the, what is the, the selfish is not so much, the problem is not to focus on self, it's the disregard of the other, right? Right. So, and that's the negativity in it, right? Right. So if I'm focused on me at the expense of someone else, or at the expense of Hashem, or as you put it, making myself more important than, then the focus on self is negative. But what if my sense of self isn't like that? Then it's not selfish. That's not selfish. It might have some. There still can be self, but that's not. I don't think what we yeah, mean when we say like self. Okay. So we can. But that's different. Right? We're already moving. There's like for instance, um, if it's really important to me that everybody have enough food, am I being selfish? It's important to me that everyone have enough food. Are you getting it because you think that's no, no, it's just really important to me that people have what to eat. Like, it really bothers me that people are hungry. I'm not, I'm not like, I like to feel like I'm an important person and I mean, the way I'm going to do that is feeding people. No, I really, when I'm hungry, it bothers me. When you're hungry, it bothers me. But it, but I'm still wrapped up in myself, aren't I? Right, so, so, so let's, so let's be clear. There's, what's, does it, there is, we have to take the word self and it can't be a pejorative. It can't be a four letter word. Pardon the pun. Self is four letters. If self comes at the expense of other, right, and we're taking the idea that we're all intrinsically united, then, then that kind of a self is bad. But what if the self is actually revealing or expressing how we're all united? Then that kind of self good. is good, right? right? Now, this is why we have to be very careful, okay? I'm gonna give you a little bit of Hebrew, okay? Does anyone know how you say self? In Hebrew, like myself, yourself, herself, himself. I don't know if you can. You can't. There's a word. Yes, mm-hmm. No. No. No, you can't. There's a word. Please, why can't you? <laughs> Anyone know the word? Self. Self. Myself. Yourself. Ani. <laughs> no, ani means I. Right. right. Atzmi means ah. myself. Mm-hmm. Atzmechem means yourselves. Ah, so apparently the word for etzem, the word for essence and self are the same idea. And because it's all about revealing the essence and getting in touch with the etzem, which just means self. self. Because what kind of self are we talking about? A true self. And the true self... That's right. If I am really in touch with my real self, it doesn't come at the expense of being devoted to Hashem. It is being devoted to Hashem. It doesn't come at the expense of loving fellow Jew. It is loving fellow Jew. It isn't the expense of anything. Right? So, the, the, the godly soul is godly. So the godly soul, yeah, it's, a, it, it, it's driven to be connected to Hashem. It's driven to be connected to Hashem and to reveal itself as a godly being. And it doesn't care if something makes me feel like I'm thriving or not. That doesn't matter. The question is, is it godly or is it not godly? And these two souls, they have to live a life together, and so you can see there's going to be problems, right? Right. Okay, for instance, have you ever played a competitive game? No. Okay. 
do you feel like you're thriving when you're winning or when you're losing? Winning. When you're winning. But winning, at least in some very subtle sense, is in fact selfish. Why? Because in order to win, someone else has to lose. Right? In competitive games, right? Unless you do that, you're playing against myself kind of thing. But, you know. People like to say stuff like that. Okay. So these two souls are stuck together, and that's going to create problems. However, we are not going to focus on the two souls. We are going to focus only on the... Okay. <laughs> the clock is backwards, which threw me off for a second. Okay. Well, I'm in good company now. So, so we're going to focus on the godly soul. Okay. So what we need to do is we need to cover a few points. Number one, in essence, the godly soul is godly. How godly? As godly as God. Okay? It's as godly as God. You okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds pretty cool, right? Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to like make it less cool. Okay. All right. <laughs> if a child, God forbid, is blind or mute, they can't see or they can't speak. Is that it? Or either. Either. Is that a, is that a tragedy? Yeah. What's a disability? It's like a nice, it's a nice power of words so we don't have to say it. Like, like, I'm serious. Like, God forbid. Like, put yourself in this situation. God forbid you were to find out this should never happen to you or anyone else, right? Yeah. That your child... Yes, tragedy. Yeah. 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 Okay. My hat can't see. My hat can't talk. Is that a tragedy? No. no. Why not? It's not, it's not supposed to be able to. Right? So, in essence, every person is a person. And there's certain intrinsic things that are true of all people. All people can talk. All people can see. But can all people talk and can all people see? No, 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 because here's the rule about intrinsic things. Intrinsic things don't necessarily have to be manifest. They don't have to be tangible. They don't have to have an actual presence in reality. Mm-hmm. If, you are intrinsically, if you intrinsically can speak, that means that either you're speaking or it's a tragedy that you can't. But speaking is somehow deeply part of what you are whether you're able to or not, whether it comes out or not. Seeing is part of what you are, whether you're actually seeing or not. So if you're intrinsically godly, what does that mean? You might be godly. You might not godly. But if you're not godly, you're still godly in what sense? That it's a tragedy that you're not. Right. In other words, when we talk about things being in essence this way, intrinsically that way, what we're talking about is a level of being which is so absolutely true, it doesn't change whether it ever manifests, whether it ever expresses itself or not. The worth of a person's life is, is, is intrinsic. So that means what if they amount to nothing? What if they ever do anything? What if they're just like a, a, a horrible person? doesn't matter. Their life is still important and meaningful because it has intrinsic worth. Right? The hat doesn't really have intrinsic worth. Right? The minute it stops being good as a hat, what do we do? Throw it away. Right? It's only what it's manifest as. So we say, oh yes, we have a soul and the soul is like a child of God. Just like the child is like the parents, the soul is intrinsically godly. All that means is there's a part of you that either is godly and is healthy or is not godly and is suffering and it's a tragedy. Essentially, you just have a disability. What? But then you have a disability. Wait, what? There's... So there's this part of us mm-hmm. which is godly. Now, what does it what does it mean? It's godly. It's a piece of it, it, it it ought to be experiencing life as a, a godly being, a godly way. And if it is, 
then it's a healthy godly soul. And if it's not, then it's an unhealthy, right? Like a child, God forbid, that can't see or can't speak, right? We still understand that the child is supposed to be able to see and they're supposed to be able to speak. So why doesn't that apply to your other soul? Yeah. It could. We have a whole, we have a whole field called mental illness, mm-hmm. right? When, 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 when the animal soul is not healthy, but mm-hmm. that's not what Tanya deals with. Tanya deals with the godly soul. And it's challenges with the animal soul. But if your animal soul is not healthy, then yeah. Like, I mean, there are some people, like, I'll give you an example. If a person has friends and they have a job and it's sunny outside and they've eaten, yeah? And they've exercised and they're not thriving, right? And this is going on day after day, week after week. What do we conclude? They have some, there's something wrong, right? Something like, and it's not a circumstantial thing. Like if, you, if you're not thriving and you have no friends, like, okay, we can see what the issue is. Like, you need to have some friends, right? You need to have a stable job. You, like, if it's like cold and miserable and rainy for months on end, we understand like that. But it, okay, so you can have that problem with the animal soul. But we're talking about the godly soul. The godly soul is intrinsically godly. What does that mean? Not it always feels godly. It means it, it's supposed to. And if it doesn't, then it's lacking and it's suffering. And if it is, then it's healthy. Then it's thriving. Then it's thriving. But, it, oh, but, it's, but here's the difference. It's not interested in, in thriving for the experience. It's interested in thriving. It's not interested in thriving at all. It's just interested in right. being godly. If it's godly, it'll be thriving. So the order is reversed. The animal soul doesn't care really what makes it thrive. Right. It just wants the experience of thriving. The godly soul wants to be godly. And if it's not, it won't be thriving. It'll be suffering. If it is, it is thriving. Is that how the two souls work that's where the possibility of them working together, right? If, if, if you can get the animal soul to thrive in relating to God, right, then it's all going to go smoothly. But that's a big if. Yeah? So the godly soul wants intrinsically to connect to God, but not to be God? Like, like you said before that it's like a mini copy of God. Right. So, so we can, our, like, if we were able to like God but not God let me give you an example um, deep down children want to be like their parents mm-hmm. but they do not want to be their parents illustrate this very simply um, this is assuming that a person has like a halfway decent relationship with their parents right there's always exceptions but if they have a halfway decent relationship with their parents there's something about their parents which is really brings out something about who they are that parent of, like, so, um, it could be a character trait, it could be a, 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 a kind of an accomplishment, whatever it is, but something that, in that sense, that really, to them, like, captures who their parent is. And on some level, the child always wants to, like, live up to that and be that in their own way. On the other hand, children are, and this is true, like, even from a young age, right, that's why, they, like, my kids are putting on my hat and, like, putting on my jacket and, like, I want to talk to you. And then as you get older, it becomes more subconscious and more sophisticated, and you drop neuroses around and blah, blah, blah. But that's part of our human psyche. Okay. The, one of the worst things, though, that can happen is if the parent goes away and the child needs to be the parent. There's a very big difference between being like my parent and replacing my parent. Right? The child, right, and that's one of the most difficult things for people, even when they're much older, they don't really need their parents to take care of them. Their parent passes away, and now, like, their parent isn't there. And, like... Realizing that on some level, like, I always looked at my parent as, like, like the, the, the top of the chain. And, like, now I realize, like, I'm the top of the chain. And I have children. I have grandchildren. But, the, but like, in everyone's eyes, it kind of ends with me because, like, my, my parents are so far in the past. And that it gives a person some kind of crisis. And if they go through that when they're a child, and all of a sudden they have the responsibility of being a parent, 
like really messes with them. So there's a difference between being someone and being like them. So the soul, God also wants to be like God. It doesn't want to be God and replace God. Like God will disappear and now I'll take over. That petrifies the godly soul. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. The, the, the more you get into the analogy of what an ideal child-parent relationship would really be like and, 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 the, and the more unconscious drives in it, gives you a better understanding of what we mean that we say the godly soul is a piece of God. Mm-hmm. Okay. And not all godly souls are the same. Some are like capable of being godly more, being godly less, but all of them have this sense that they should be godly. And if they're not godly, that's a tragedy. And if they are godly, then they're able to be, feel healthy and thrive. Good? Does it feel that it's a tragedy? Yeah. That's why Jews are always miserable. Really? Mm-hmm. Someone asked the Rebbe once, are, are Jews smarter than other people? And the Rebbe said, no. But Jews are more uneased than other people. They're more restless. They're more dissatisfied. And the real reason is because the soul isn't, being, isn't fully godly as it should be. And that dissatisfaction exerts pressure on your mind. And when people are dissatisfied with things, they get to be more creative because they try to find solve problems. But if you don't know what problem you're trying to solve, you end up solving other problems. Um, you see this well with kids. Like when kids, when they have issues in life, like there's a, a trauma or a tension in the home or something, kids become very creative ways of dealing with that but they don't always realize what problem they're trying to solve. And so the solution doesn't always solve that problem. Okay. So, yeah, we all have this like little existential crisis going on in the back of our minds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Chassidus, your guide to Jewish self-alienation. <laughs> now, wouldn't it be nice if your godly soul would be a healthy, thriving being? Yeah. Okay. So that moves us on to chapter three. Chapter? Three. They were moving fast, yeah? yeah? It really throws me off that it's backwards. How's it backwards? Well, because I see the reflection. Oh. Right, so I'm like... I think that was, that was, all, like, that was like one and two combo. That was one and two combo. One into two. Yeah. Obviously, there's more in chapters one and two, right? Evidence being that we spent a lot of time on them, but I'm just giving you like the main thrust of things that we have contest for chapter. It's like there's like nine posts on this one page. Which page is that? Um, the beginning of chapter two. There you go. We spent a lot of time on the parent-child relationship. Okay. Okay. So, the godly soul, in essence, is just this need to be godly. Okay, but that actually is manifest through having a um, godly awareness, a godly psyche. If you want to think about it for a moment, um, Who you are in a very real way is not um, something that's static, it's something that changes, but it changes very gradually, right? So like who you were when you were two and who you are when you're 20, you're not the same person, right? In essence, if you're the same person, yeah, but, but, right? Like if someone knew you at two, we wouldn't say they know you at 20, right? If they know you at two and at 20, they might be able to see the connection, right? But they also might not, right? Sometimes it happens, someone knows you're two, meets you again at 20, like, they have a hard time, same person, right? Okay, so what is the thing that's changing? And the thing that's changing are what Chassidus would call two parts of ourselves. Um, I'm gonna give you the Hebrew. Why am I gonna give you the Hebrew? I'm sorry, what do you mean by There's that? two parts of you that change from the age of 20, or two to 20, or 20 to 40, or whatever it is, so that make you a different person. Right? I'm gonna give you the Hebrew. Why am I gonna give you the Hebrew? 
it's not really so translatable. There isn't like one good word in English that captures these. Um, they're usually translated as intellect and emotion, but if I tell you that someone is an intellectual, what kind of person do you think they are? Intelligent. Intelligent, what else? Smart. Man. Smart, academic. Okay. Is and someone an experience? No. Oh, what, changes, what changes is called seichel and midas. Okay. Usually translated as intellect and emotion. That's what changes from 2 to 20. And that's what, whenever you're changing, what's really changing about you is this thing called seichel and midas. Okay. What did you say usually translates to Emotion. Okay. Now, so that means, now let's, let's think about it like this. When it, when it, let's, we're going to talk about an analogy, and then we're going to go back to the godly soul. When an infant is born, okay, um, can the infant talk? No. Can the infant see? Very minimally. Do you know that? What? It takes some time to learn how to 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 acquire sight. Some things pretty quickly. Some things take longer, right? Okay. Okay. Right. Now we're like, okay, the child is healthy. Meanwhile, they can't see. They can barely see. They can't talk. They can't walk. Right. They can't eat food. Like, how are they healthy? What's the answer? There's normal birth their age, like birth. It's the process that's supposed to happen. Right. So this is one. Okay. It it's. It, even if they're, it, it's, it's not just that it's normal for their age, it's that this is a stage that they pass through. So what if somehow you were to know like the baby doesn't walk and never will walk, you don't say, well, they're healthy now, but they won't be healthy later. No, they're not healthy now, right? Because the idea is that there's this idea of development, right? And so if the baby is developing, then we say it's healthy, right? So we don't like objectively say like, how well can my child talk? We wanna know like how the ability to speak is developing. And when that development is happening as it should, we say it's healthy. And when that development is not happening as it should, it's being obstructed, it's regressing, we say you're unhealthy. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So if the godly souls have two characteristics, we'll see what they are. They're called seichel and they're called midos. How do you know if they're healthy? Do you like make a, take a measuring stick and look and see, like, have you reached this level, therefore you're healthy? Yeah. What do you look for? Right, they grow. Well, you know, because this is spiritual, so you don't can't use the brain. You look and see: are these two characteristics developing? Are they progressing as they should? Okay. So, for instance, if I look at the godly soul of my ten-month-old, I think he's ten months now. Yeah. How developed are his godly souls, seichelimidos, whatever those things are? They're not underdeveloped. They're not very developed, but for you know, having only had ten months to develop, they're doing quite nicely. Right. As far as I can tell. Usually, by the way, your godly soul develops just fine for the first few years of life. It's a general rule. Okay. Um, but now, what happens when you're looking at someone when they're like twenty? Does that necessarily mean that they've developed nicely all the way till twenty? No. No. Okay. And now we can have problems. Okay. So what are these things, the seichel and the mitos? So the seichel is the um, part of the soul where the soul is, a, is aware of God. That's broadly speaking what seichel is. The seichel of the godly soul is the godly soul's awareness of God. Okay? 
Now we're gonna just do very simple level stuff because I wanna make this concrete. Do you guys know how it rains? Like the process by which rain comes about? How does that, go? How does that happen? I'm done, start from the beginning. Whatever, I just wanna know how it rains. Your godly soul's seichel is not fully developed. It's not sufficiently developed. How do I know? Because God created No. No. Because that then also. Because the most real thing is God, right? So the explanation of anything would involve. And the explanation of everything wouldn't involve God as an afterthought you tack on because you happen to be a believing person. But it would be actually, he would be like an integral part of the actual mechanism of how it happened. I've never met anyone who's godly soul sufficient. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Yeah. Like I said. But by the way, have you ever asked a two year old how it rains? Hashem made it rain. Hashem made it rain. Which is fine, because they're two, right? I mean they're not so sophisticated, but like that's your thing. Now the problem is when you're twenty, what's the twenty year old version of the same answer? Like develop the cycle sufficiently that your sense of God is matured with the level of sophistication of a twenty year old, but it's still that God is the most real thing. You can't just say God made it rain, right? It needs to be more involved than that, but it needs to still have that same, that the most real thing about this whole explanation is God, because God is the most real thing that is. If you were to explain that same thing she just said, but started off that God created a thing called this, and this created... That's still not, still not good enough. So like, when, so because then you're making God the background. So it would be like the... So would that be how is that making God? What? How is that making God? Um... Let's. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Let's say, let's say someone's married. Okay, we'll do it. We'll, we'll say the man is married, and someone asks this man, "How's his life going?" And for forty-five minutes, he talks about his career and his children and his bowling league and you know show politics and how like everything's happening. He doesn't mention his wife once. And someone says, what about your wife? He says, well, I mean, obviously without my wife, none of this would happen, and my wife's so wonderful and blah blah blah. blah. Of course, my wife and. So what would we conclude at that point about the person and his sense of his wife? Where is his wife in his psyche? The foreground or the background? Background. Okay, now, what if he says, what if he just like throws off in the beginning, well, you know, without my wife, none of this would be, and then goes on to talk about nothing, everything other than his wife. It's similar, right? It's not exactly the same, but it's also similar. Like, like if the wife was on the foreground, then you'd think that that's what he would be talking about. Right? It would all connect back. It would constantly show up. Right? That's the things that are on the foreground of someone's mind, the things that are most subjectively real to them. Okay. Yeah, um, but the problem is, is that God is real to you and all that, but then God also put you in the world and is also what you want. But we're just talking about your soul. So you, if you want to ask, I can tell you the answer your soul would give. Now I'm just telling you, yeah, because well, I, I'm telling you the answer because this, this, I read it in the book. It's not like my soul is developed to that point, that my seichel is like that, that if you were to ask me genuinely, this is how I think about it. So we're talking about just like a, just this godly soul. If your godly soul was fully healthy and developing, this is how it would answer the question. Yeah. Such a it would, partially developed Yeah, like, yeah. Partially All our souls are partially developed. I'm oversimplifying so we understand the idea, right? Yeah. And in real life, what's, what's, there's no developed and not developed. There's no like you have. Well, think about it like this, right? Like a two-year-old, do they develop? They're developed at the age of stage of two. And if you're two, then that's fine, right? The problem is always like if my godly soul developed 
sufficiently given the level of my human development? That's the question you always want to ask yourself. Um, so here's, here's what the godly soul would say. Can the Yes, but we don't want to talk about that now. We'll wait till chapter 8. <laughs> Four years later. <laughs> what you just said about how, like, it's relative to, like, the, your human condition. So, like, someone who's 30 and you're like, oh, I just found out I'm a Jew and I'm 30 and I never, like, heard anything about any of this Jewish stuff. Like, does that mean that they're, they're like, undeveloped? Probably. Their godly soul's undeveloped. Probably. By the way, you could be religious and also undeveloped. Like it's a, yeah, that's yeah, 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 probably. Okay, so this is what the godly soul would answer if you ask the godly soul, like, how does the rain work? I say, well, Hashem wants to connect to us. And in order to connect to us, on the one hand, there has to be the safety and security of knowing that we're going to be provided for no matter what. But on the other hand, that can create a sense of distance and being, ta being taken for granted that undermines the relationship. So Hashem provides our needs in two ways. One way he provides our needs is that they just occur, right? And that's like the do. The do just like, it's just there always. And then some of our needs are taken care of only in response to how we turn to him. And so what happens is that when we turn to Hashem in genuine need and we daven for rain, then that connection is something that Hashem finds very meaningful and reflects back to us as physical blessing and that's how it rains. By the way, you'll notice that there's this also a cycle of things going up and coming down. But that's what the godly soul would say. I, I read it in a book. I know what it says. It doesn't mean like when I think about the rain, I was like, oh, davening has been working really well recently because it rained yesterday. So could a tzaddik have a non-developed sample? Or no, no, no. Really that would have made it. That wouldn't be a tzaddik. Yeah. So if somebody's godly soul is talking about you mentioned that it's raining and then they say that's because you're praying for rain, no, because people can say anything they want. The question is, where is that coming from? If they really feel that way. No, I mean, like, they're being genuine. Like, but they're being genuine, then their sales are yeah, more developed. Yeah. The sales are more developed, right? But their global development. For sure. So for sure. Like, right. I, 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 I'm giving you two extremes so you see the idea, but I, I don't, this is, first off, this is all meant to be descriptive rather than judgmental. It's just, yeah. That, yeah. So is the response you just said, like, the response that, like, Sadiq can literally get? Yeah, I mean, there's, the, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 let me give you an example, okay? So, this is a real, okay. You ever had a problem? Yeah. Okay. When you have a problem, problem, when you have a problem, you go to, like, the people that you think can genuinely solve the problem, right? And if you yeah. really think they can solve the problem, you're, you become pretty, um, what's the word, adamant that they help you in one way or another because, like, you really need your problem solved, okay? Mm -hmm. So one time, there was a drought. And the Jewish people went to Choni. Choni the circle maker. Why was he known as Choni the circle maker? Because he made circles. Yeah. But it's more fun to say circle maker. Yeah. I was going to say Magal in the end. Yes, Choni the circle maker. He made circles. So they go to Choni and say, Look, you and God have a pretty good relationship. Why don't you talk to God about getting us some rain, please? And he says, Okay, no problem. And he makes a circle. And he stands in the circle. And he says, God, not leaving the circle till you make it rain. Now, let's just stop here. How convinced does your mind have to be that the rain comes because of God responding to our supplication and not because of the physics of the water cycle to stay? I'm going to stand in a circle until God makes it rain because I told him he should make it rain because I really want it to rain. You have to be really, like, your mind really has to think that's how the world works. Okay. And then guess what happens? 
It starts to drizzle. So Chani says, God, that's not what I meant. You know, rain. So then there's a torrential downpour. And the people are like, Chani, we're going to die. It's a flood. God, do I have to spell that out? Rain, that is a blessing for the people. And then it rains the way it's supposed to. Okay, so there's levels of this, right? There's enough that that's your answer to the question, but then when it's a drought, you're like calling up the water company. And then there's a level where like you stand in a circle and say like, God, we need some rain. And like, no drizzling isn't good enough. Sometimes, by the way, for a brief moment, something of that just like pops into us, right? But the question is whether this is, that's not the issue. The question is whether that's the stable, normative way that your mind processes reality. Can I just say that if we try to train ourselves to live like that, it would be hard. Yes. For our, no one's saying for our surroundings. I know it's hard. But I would say for our surroundings to react. Meaning like... If I want to not plan my wedding and the forecast says it's going to rain, I'm like, I'm like, no, but I believe I'm going to tell God that it's not going to rain. Okay. You could think that way, but there's going to be like a lot of others who won't. Are you just observing the fact that like having the view that God is like really real and really does run the world and if you have any issues, you take it up with him, does kind of put you at odds with the normal way human beings process reality, make plans and decisions? Yes. Hence the tension of integrating your sense of intrinsic connection with Hashem and being a functional human being. Hard. Okay. So, you know, little, by the way, little kids do this all the time. They have a problem, like they ask God, and then like at some point, they like have to come to terms with the fact that God says no, and then sometimes they, like, then they just like give up, which is a problem. So, right, but there's other stuff like God created the world and God is intrinsically good and God is the source of all life. I mean, all these things that we can say and we can all say them, right? The question is how much of those things are actually the way our minds perceive reality? That's the seichel. It's not a matter of being able to understand it academically in a classroom. It's not a matter of being able to explain it. It's not a matter of being able to know the right words. It's actually, does, is that the way your mind makes sense of your reality in which you live, of yourself, of everything, right? Um, you ever like have uh, something coming up that you really important to you? It says like on your mind all the time. Okay, is God really important to you? Mm-hmm. Is He on your mind all the time? No. But we're, right, we're, but but. I mean, he, he, should he be? Like, I, I not about should. There's no should in Tanya until chapter twelve. Okay. <laughs> it's all just describing. Like this is just the way it is. Like. You know, no, yeah. most people do not have him on their mind right. because right. I would have been thinking about davening. Or yeah, but if you're in the bathroom, you're not, well, you're not allowed to. Oh, yeah. you are. That was one of the major disagreements between the Chassidim and the non-Chassidim because you're like you're not allowed. You're allowed to think about God in the bathroom. You're just not allowed to think about Torah in the bathroom. You're allowed to think about God in the bathroom. Sure. Can you say his name? No. You can think about how everything's working. That's right. God is making this all work, which is great because when it doesn't work, that is really bad. Just can't think about, you know, Torah mitzvahs in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And even that, there's interesting rules. Okay, so, so, right, and if you think about it, like, what's the difference between a two-year-old and, and a 20-year-old is what they really think the world, how they think the world works, what's important to them, right? Like that's what's different about you between two and 20. So that's what we're talking about. Okay, what are the midos? The midos are 
um, they basically come in two forms. Okay, I'm going to explain them and then I'll give them names. Okay, one form of midas are like glue; they glue you to stuff. Okay, they create attachment. And the other form of midas, they do the opposite; they create distance. Okay. I will, but I want to first describe because so. There's all sorts of stuff in your life, okay? What was that mean? Detachment, disconnect. Okay. So there's all sorts of things, in, there's all sorts of things in everybody's life that they feel connected to, they feel drawn to, they feel belong, they want more of, right? That's a whole genre of different experiences, but they all fit into this basic category. That What kind of relationship do you have with these things? Glue. It's like glue. And there's a whole category of things where? Distance. About distance, right? Okay. The godly soul has the same thing, except they're all oriented around God. So, when the godly soul is growing, right, it feels a stronger sense of this being glued to everything godly and needing more godliness, and a stronger sense of aversion and distance to everything ungodly. Okay? This is called traditionally love and fear, ava and yira. There's a lot of different levels and types of it, but basically it boils down to any sense of belonging, attachment, desire, wanting, whatever that the godly soul experiences is only directed at one thing, God and godliness. And all of the aversion and disconnect and disdain and disgust and repulsion. Yeah. From what? It's from everything ungodly. Oh. Okay. So now, are you? Would you say that right now you're afraid of dying? So, so you have to really say what you mean. Do you mean like, am I feeling the emotion of fear? The answer to that is no. But is there something in me that has a strong aversion to death? Yeah. And if it ever becomes relevant, it's going to fly out into my consciousness and yeah, right? Okay. Like if I'm walking down the street and all of a sudden a car is like whoa, and jump back, right? Or if I somehow correctly or incorrectly believe my life is in danger, I'm going to start sweating. Right? Yeah. So, in some sense, the fear is there. Okay? That's why the word emotion is maybe not the best word, because emotions are things you, you know, they turn on and off and you feel them. This is something that's much more stable than an emotion. Sometimes it has an emotional experience when it's very palpable and intense, but sometimes it's much more um, unconscious. Right? Like most of us, um, I'll give you a most of us, most of us are afraid of hitting our nose against things. Okay. Which is why if we fall, what do we instinctively do? Right. Put out our hands, right? Which is why if someone challenges us to run full speed into a wall, we can't help but slow down right before we hit the wall. Right? That's not because we're feeling fear in the sense of like panic, but there's this aversion, there's this staying away from. So there's this whole body of aspects of our psyche which is staying away in distance, and there's all this thing called being attached and glued and coming together. And so the godly soul, as it grows and gets stronger, its sense of its sense of bonding and glue to everything godly gets stronger and more intense and more stable and more pervasive. And then the aversion and the distance of everything ungodly. And we call that love and fear. So in some ways, that it makes sense that the midas come from the same soul. How will it work the other way? When we get to the animal soul, we'll talk about it. The godly soul doesn't work that way. Right, but like, okay. Okay. Which means like this. It's a very easy way. How healthy, how, how developed, how, how developed is your godly soul? Well, I'll make a simple thing. Like, I live in life. How much is God the 
and godly being, godly reality, the thing in which my mind makes sense of everything around me, and how much is godliness the thing that I have strong attachments to, and everything ungodly I have strong aversions to, and how much of it's actually not that way. Right? Like, for instance, most of us are pretty comfortable like turning off and on lights on Shabbos. Right? No. We are. Yeah. You're comfortable? You're comfortable doing it. Maybe. I mean, if I tell you that it's a violation of Shabbos, then okay, that's not fun. But like, like intrinsically, yeah. intrinsically, you're not like, right? But you, you, you're, you're not okay with crossing this, crossing the highway, busy highway, right? So I don't have to tell you that that's dangerous to cross a busy highway, right? See the difference. Two-year-olds, right? Their ball runs into the street. Not runs. The ball rolls into the street, right? And what is the two-year-old intending to do? Right, because their attachment to the ball is stronger than any aversion to the danger in the street, right? So then comes along a parent and tells them, don't do that, right? And then the child has this whole thing about wanting to like be accepted by their parents, and so maybe they listen, and maybe they don't, and if that gets instilled enough, then they're a very obedient child, and they won't do it, and if they see other children do it, they'll tell them their parents, right? But that's not the same thing as like a normal adult, which is like, I'm not running into the freeway for a ball. Like, I don't need someone to tell me that that's not okay. Like, I, I, I have a sense of this is dangerous and that's not worth it. And it's just that simple. So going back to the light on Shabbos, all of us who are careful not to turn on and off lights on Shabbos, is it more like the two-year-old or more like the 20-year-old when it comes to the ball? You know, it's like I have this strong aversion, like I can't, what? You've been told not to do it, and I believe it, and I accept it, and I would feel guilty if I didn't, and like I, I can believe that it's bad for me, but it's not the same thing as having that concrete sense of aversion. This is, okay. Now, I'm again oversimplifying, right? Do we fluctuate in these things? Okay, do we grow in these things? Okay, but that's what we mean. So we say, you have a godly soul. Well, the question is, is it godly? Well, the question is, how? where's your seichel and the midos relative to God? If they're really developed and vibrant and growing and, and manifesting, then you're pretty godly. And if they're not, then it's like, God forbid, like a child that can't see or can't walk or whatever. That Intrinsically, that's supposed to be there. Intrinsically, the potential is there, but something has gone wrong. So could, but could you have someone where, let's say like, they, they feel God and whatever, but then somehow they're doing things that they're sure. not doing. Sure. Sure. But that, that itself means that the sense of God is very um, undeveloped and immature. And, yeah. By the way, we have to be, you can't learn Tanya and be judgmental, not with yourself and not with other people. Because the Tanya is. It, you, you can't engage in a long-term process if you, if you react um, emotionally towards every bit of information. You just have to take information in, put it all together, and then make, okay, given that this is the reality of the situation, what is a reasonable course of action? Right? It's not, the time is not written not to be a, a, a book that's meant to rebuke people, and it's neither written to inspire people. It's much more like, um, just like, this is the reality, this is how things work, and now you can make more informed decisions about how to grow and be more effective. Right? And so pretending, pretending that, I've, that my soul is healthier than it is is not going to help anybody. Now, should I go so far to the extreme and then say it's like completely like, undeveloped? That's also not true, right? It's somewhere in the middle, not where it should be, and like 
you know, in chapter three, we talk more about how to develop that and grow that, et cetera, et cetera. Chapter four is saying, okay, now that we've spoken of the fact that we have this godly soul, and we've spoken about what it means that that godly soul is healthy, right? That godly soul is growing, it has the seichel, it has the midas. What else is there in the life and the reality of this godly soul? Because it's not just your sense of God, right? It's not just the seichel and the midas. There's more going on. What else is there? And that's chapter four. So I think we succeeded, yeah? Okay, two minutes over, but we succeeded. In... So tomorrow we will move on from in addition. And we'll start chapter four. All right, in general, I will try and be here before class, around 15 minutes before.